Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, in partnership with the Genomics Education Programme, we're taking a look at some of the common myths and misconceptions surrounding genomics and genetic tests. Are mutations always bad? If you're more like your mum, does that mean you've inherited more of her genes? And is there such a thing as a perfect genome? It is certainly as true as the gospel that when a man sleeps with his wife or his mistress with dirty and smelly feet, if he fathers a boy, the chill will have smelly and unpleasant breath, and if he fathers a girl, she will have a stinky rear end. There are lots of strange ideas about inheritance out there in the world. That one's from the Distaff Gospels, a collection of medieval old wives' tales. Pregnant women were also advised to avoid eating hairs in case they caused their baby to be born with a cleft palate and to skip snacking on fish heads in case their child ended up with a trout pout. Fortunately, our understanding of inheritance has moved on a bit since then. Genetics and genomics are playing ever more important roles in modern healthcare. Genetic tests and increasingly more detailed genomic analysis are providing an unprecedented amount of information about the underlying genetic variations and alterations that affect our health. Today's DNA tests can reveal a genetic diagnosis for an unknown developmental condition, identify family members with an inherited genetic risk factor for a certain type of cancer so they can choose whether to take up preventive measures such as surgery or screening. They can inform decisions about the best treatment for certain diseases and even help couples figure out their options for having a family, and much more too. The pace at which genomic data and technologies are coming into the clinic is impressive. But at the same time, it can leave all of us, patients, the public and healthcare providers, not to mention genetics podcasters, feeling a little bit overwhelmed with all this new information and trying to figure out what it all means. To help address the confusion, the Genomics Education Programme is running a week of action from the 16th to the 20th of March, designed to raise awareness about the impact of genomics in healthcare and what we can all do to tackle some of the myths and misconceptions that are out there. You can get in on the action by following at GenomicsEDU and hashtag GenomicsConversation on Twitter, or just head over to genomicseducation.hee.nhs.uk. So, hair lips and trout pouts aside, let's find out some of the misconceptions that people believe about genetics in the 21st century. Mutations are always bad, right? There's nothing that runs in our family. Clearly, I've got a perfect genome. What does it mean if I have the bowel cancer gene? Am I definitely going to get cancer? There is a history of inherited breast cancer in the family, but I won't get it because I'm male. We're a heart disease family, so I don't need to worry about my cancer risk. If it's a 50-50 chance of inheriting a faulty gene and I have two kids, one of them will get it and one won't. That's how maths works. I've got a genetic condition. Does this mean something bad happened back in our family tree or my parents did something wrong? I worry that because I have a genetic condition, my kids will definitely get it too. If I'm more like my dad, that means I must have inherited more of his genes. It must be a really strong gene because everyone in our family seems to have it. Nobody in our generation has the condition that my dad and granddad do. That means we've bred it out, so there's no chance my kids will have it. Once we know everything about our DNA, we'll have all the answers to illness and health. Your genes control everything about you. If it's in your genes, you can't do anything about it. One gene determines one characteristic, like eye colour or skin colour. 
Like Mendel found with his peas, there are only two versions of a gene, dominant and recessive. Changes in your DNA are rare. If you've got mutations in any of your genes, it will be obvious because you'll look different or be ill. If we have a genetic test for one of our kids, then we'll know what they've got and we'll know how to treat it. Someone who's heard almost all those myths and misconceptions at some point is Laura Boys, consultant genetic counsellor for the West Midlands. But where do they come from in the first place? I guess people come to genetics with lots of different theories about inheritance and particularly about genetic conditions in their family. It feels like we're predisposed to make up theories of inheritance from a really early stage in life. Even when a baby's born, we talk about who they look like, who oh, they got your dad's take nose. after. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of continues throughout life, doesn't it? Thinking about which side of the family we're more like, which of our parents we're more like and in my experience, people tend to apply that within a situation where they're thinking about inherited conditions or genetic conditions as well. So some of the things we really often hear is that I take more after one side of the family than I do the other side of the family. I'm really like my father and therefore I think I'm going to have this gene because he had this gene. And that feels like a really human and natural kind of response to make. So often it's in response to a 50-50 chance of inheriting an altered gene. But people can't always manage to make sense of the fact that they can seem to be more taking after one side of the family, but they've still got 50% of their genes from the other side of the family as well. We're 50% our mother, 50% our father every time. And people can't always equate that to what they're actually seeing played out in their family so sometimes that can present us with a bit of a challenge because it means people come with a preconception about what their genetic test result might show and what their chance really is of inheriting an altered gene and while that's sometimes not particularly harmful um, we don't necessarily need to be like computers we don't necessarily need to process chance in the way that a computer would process chance actually if it means that we're only considering one possible outcome from a genetic test then it starts to become a little bit more of a difficulty for that person and I guess as genetic counsellors part of the role that we're doing is to try and help people to navigate and process the idea of being at risk of it having a particular genetic variant or genetic alteration. And this is the principle of how casinos work is humans are terrible gamblers <laughs> and we have a really misplaced perception about risk and you say oh well you know I'm feeling lucky I've had a streak mm. of four blacks on the roulette table so yeah it's got to be red next yeah. so I guess if you are telling this story deep down to yourself oh I've got more of my dad's family side of genes therefore I can't have the condition that affects my mum's family mm. maybe deep down that's going to be something really baked into you and it, it mm. might be hard to hear the answer that says well actually you have when really you'd have this hope mm. that you didn't yeah, and sometimes I think it can raise other issues that have happened throughout life for people. So if they have associated their relationship with one parent or the other as being more difficult and then they find that they've inherited the gene from that particular parent, that can make it more difficult to adjust to the fact that they have this altered gene. One of the other things that my mum really likes to do is look back into our family history. Do you ever get people coming in who've actually kind of done part of the work for you, have gone back and traced their family trees? Oh yeah, so um, 
people are generally really helpful about tracking back family history and we ask for quite a lot of it in genetics so we often ask for people to go back three generations so their parents and their grandparents but sometimes you'll get people who are are really avid historians and they'll come in having traced their family back to the 1600s in advance of your appointment and with big elaborate family trees that they've drawn out themselves on both sides and found out really interesting things about their history all in preparation for helping to understand the genetic condition in the family. How that is dedication. Absolutely. What are some of the other types of misconceptions? Are there broad themes in the misunderstandings and and the myths that people bring to you? Yep, so aside from those that draw on taking after one side or taking after the other side, people also sometimes carry with them, and this might be quite subconscious, ideas that carrying a gene alteration is something that is a response to something bad that's happened or something that they've done wrong or that it carries a sort of stigma and um, one that we really commonly hear actually in families where there's recessive conditions like cystic fibrosis is grandparents or great-grandparents saying well that can't possibly have come from our side of the family because there isn't any history of that in our side of the family it can't be us and that, I think that does two things so first of all it overlooks the fact that in recessive conditions you often don't see any history in the family because it takes two people that are carriers to have a child together for a child to be born with cystic fibrosis and that can happen to anybody at any time even if there's no history but also it gives a a kind of judgment if you like to somebody being a carrier for cystic fibrosis and in actual fact you know we've all got alterations in our genes some of them they give us differences they make us unique some of them give us good attributes some of them are more difficult and challenging to deal with but it's completely normal that we've all got some alterations in our genes and it feels quite important that we recognize that and we help people to understand that because we can judge ourselves very harshly particularly I think when people become parents they judge their own parenting harshly they take on a lot of responsibility for the things that their children have to deal with and if their child has a genetic condition that particularly shows they can really feel like it's their fault that they are having to deal with all of this and for some people knowing that it's a genetic cause for that particular condition can help to alleviate some of that guilt. For other people, it just radiates back in waves through the family that feels like this alteration being passed down makes something in their family a bit faulty. And really we need to move away from that because it's normal and occurring in everybody that we have gene alterations. I always like to say everyone's a little bit mutant. (laughs) I'm aware that the word mutant is not terribly helpful, you know, so this talk of mutants and mutations. Well, so it's often a term that we avoid because it can be heard in lots of different ways. But actually, some of it's about knowing your audience. And I've had teenagers and young children, particularly when I've talked about genetics, say that they have got really excited about the idea that they might be a mutant because they really like (laughs) X-Men. And so it suddenly means that they're a superhero. (laughs) Everyone wants to be a superhero. Everyone wants to be a superhero. (laughs) So in your role as a genetic counsellor, in encountering all these superheroes everywhere, what are some of the ways in which you try to figure out what are people's misunderstandings, the the baggage that people are bringing when you're dealing with families and people who are, are looking into their genetics? So I think it's really about providing some time and space for that person to be able to really talk about what's been happening in their family. That's not something that we do in a lot of places within the health service, I don't think. We're under increasing time pressure as health professionals everywhere. And one of the real luxuries within genetics is that we get the time to be able to speak properly, to talk to our patients and our families and understand not just what 
the condition is that they're coming with, but also how all of their thoughts and emotions are being processed around it. And actually, if you have a really strong belief, as I do, that well-being and health are intimately linked, then actually it feels really important that people get that chance. What's the impact of doing that well? What do you aim to send people away feeling and understanding? Um, I guess I would be aiming to send people away knowing a little bit more, feeling that they've been understood, feeling that a lot of what they're feeling is normal and that they're not alone, so they're not so isolated with it, and hence, hopefully, to feel a bit more empowered to be able to deal with the condition and everything that comes along with it, not just for them, but also for their family as well. And in turn, that means that they then get to model some of that for their children, for their sisters, for their parents, whoever comes next in the chain. Is there one thing that you really wish that people could understand about genetics, about genomics, that would be helpful if generally, like, everyone coming to you knew and understood this thing? So I think if there were one thing, it would be that variation is normal. That actually we've all got many changes in our genes and they result in different attributes. But actually that's all what makes us us. And if we can accept those and accept that there are ones that are very positive as well as ones that cause us some difficulties, it would mean that we can accept genetic conditions more as a whole and that would help everybody to approach it in a slightly different light. I don't think it's as important that people have a good understanding about a particular inheritance pattern or that they know how many genes we've got or what those genes do or that you know some of them protect us against cancer and that some of them make our heart work in the correct way. Actually, those are things that are quite easy to teach. People don't need to know those before they come, but actually as society, if we could have a better acceptance that variation is completely normal then that would be a nice place to start. That's genetic counsellor Laura Boys. One common touchpoint for many people when it comes to learning about inheritance and genes is popular culture, whether that's the X-Men mutants, Sith dynasties in Star Wars, or the peculiar twist on hereditary memories in Assassin's Creed. I asked Anna Middleton, Head of Society and Ethics Research at the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge, whether these media portrayals of genetics are helpful, harmful, or just... Well, after leaving school, we know that most people get their genetics and genomics education, so to speak, from popular culture in the media. And often you see there are opportunities for wonderfully imaginative discussions about conspiracy theories and things that are just, you know, come from crime dramas and medical dramas. And I actually don't see this as a negative thing, personally. I see this as a method to springboard a conversation when it's useful to have a conversation in a clinical setting. And I also feel, and also know from our own empirical research, that people understand that X-Men and mutated genes is not real, but that the actual message behind that is that DNA exists, and if you make changes to it, it can alter a phenotype and that so, so basic I'm principle not, is quite useful so i'm not actually gonna become a spider-man if i get bitten by a spider <laughs> no oh. but the, what the film has done is introduced the concept of dna in a very socially acceptable way and then it's in the lexicon and that's great and i think we should be celebrating that and i do know that scientists get very het up about the accuracy of how genetics is portrayed and certainly in our group um, we've done research about the interface between popular culture and genetics and how useful this is for clinic we feel very strong that it's actually very very helpful because at least it gives you a bridge to then build on 
because we do know that the vast majority of the public, 85% of the public in the UK, have never heard of the word genomics before, and why would they? But they may well have heard of X-Men, and so that gives you an in, basically, for a conversation starter. It is very sad to think that probably many more people have seen the X-Men films than have listened to my podcast. Uh, (laughs) How important... Do you think it is that like the details are accurate? Because I know that some scientists get very wound up. You know, the DNA helix is going the wrong way. They talk about inheritance all wrong. Urgh, who mm. was the science mm. communicator on this film or something like that? How important is it that the technical details are actually correct? The technical details... Well, of course, you, you want the science to be as good as it possibly can be, but I would not get too worried like many scientists do, about always using the technical terms. So, for example, if you use the term pathogenic variant, you know, but that's not in common parlance. People are not going to really know what that means unless you're wanting to create a power dynamic and show how expert you are. Why not use the term glitch instead? People instantly get what that means. You know, why would you deliberately try and use a set of language that's going to alienate people? So I don't feel as upset about the scientific accuracy as other scientists do. But what I do feel is very important is just a general kind of engagement, awareness, raising socialisation of all of these concepts so that people can just engage when they're ready to engage. And I guess as well, like you mentioned earlier, if there are wildly outrageous ideas about genetics and inheritance, surely that's a point for a discussion about, you know, do you think this is true? Do you think this could happen? Absolutely. And, you know, I think... What we should all be aiming for is just a very broad, general awareness of the discipline. So in the same way that climate change is now something that everybody has at least heard of, um, they may not know the scientific ins and outs, the uncertainties, the risks, the actual science behind it, but at least they've heard of it. And it feels as if genomics and genetics needs that same makeover, you know, in terms of communication methods, so that it's just part of everyday language and lexicon. And people down the pub, you know, would feel comfortable just having a very, very basic conversation about the significance of that for themselves. It's interesting you pick up on climate change because there's some big climate disaster movies and and sometimes just looking at the news media, you know, looking at things like the bushfires in Australia, looking at the climate change and the environmental impacts that's happening around the world. That can seem like a disaster movie. Mm. And even from the news media, what we take to be factual and true, you hear stories about gene editing and all this kind of scary designer baby stuff. How does that impact on the public consciousness, do you think? Well, I think it does impact and it, you know, will feed in some level of messaging. And I think that's a good thing. But, you know, what's most important is that when people actually want to explore the facts that they have really good quality resources to go to that's really what's pivotal here and of course the first thing you do when you you hear about enormous climate disasters in certain parts of the world is you you know you're googling is this due to climate change and you're looking to see what's online about it and you're trying to make a judgment on where you fit you know your opinion into this and and so for the genomics and the genetics and you know the healthcare space in relation to this is absolutely pivotal that's really good go-to set of resources to really help people and it's not just about delivering the science which is important but it's also about what does this mean for me now and what can I do about it and what's the relevance of this for my children those are the sorts of questions that people are asking.
You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast brought to you in association with the Genomics Education Programme's Week of Action. You can get in on the action by following at GenomicsEDU and hashtag Genomics Conversation on Twitter or head over to genomicseducation.hee.nhs.uk. As Anna mentioned, regardless of the ideas about genetics and genomics that people have picked up along the way, it's important that they know where to get more information when they're ready and that these resources are accurate and easy to find. That's true not just for the public, but also for healthcare professionals who may be feeling more than a bit bewildered by this fast-moving field. Michelle Bishop is the Education Lead for the Genomics Education Programme, part of Health Education England. So I started by asking her whose job it is to get accurate information about genomics out there. I do think that everyone does play a responsibility to try and get as accurate a message out there, although appreciating that might not always work in some circumstances. But in terms of healthcare, we know that the public will be getting their information from a wide variety of sources, whether that's popular media or family and friends or from what they've learned at school. And so healthcare professionals, I believe, do have a role to try and identify any of those misconceptions or misinformation that people have and to help navigate the conversation around that to address that so that individuals when they're making decisions about genetic or genomic testing are doing so with correct information. I also think that educators have quite an important role as well so thinking especially of the educators of the future workforce because this is an area where students will again come to the classroom or to the virtual classroom with their own prior knowledge or preconceptions about ideas But actually, the educator has a really important role to try and identify those misconceptions and to correct that misinformation so that in the future, those healthcare professionals are not perpetuating these messages to the patients that they meet. It is incredible thinking how much and how fast the picture is changing. I think back to the kind of stuff I learned at school. It was very much, you know, Mendel and his PEs and all this kind of thing. And it really, it wasn't until I was actually doing my PhD that we had large scale genome sequencing, still very, very slow. And now you can get whole genomes done. We're talking about widespread mass whole genome sequencing and then using that information to inform healthcare. It feels like stuff's changing very, very fast. How can people on the front line, health professionals, teachers, educators, nurses, just start to think about how to get on top of this? It just seems like, wow, so much. It is so much. And I think not only is the information that we're understanding about genomics increasing, the use of it in popular culture is also increasing as well. So you're getting people having access to this information from a wide variety of sources and perhaps not getting the correct information. So I think it's about having a place where people know if they're going there to get the information, it's correct information, it's up-to-date information and it's credible information as well. So it's also having to navigate the internet where there's a wide variety of information out there and educational resources, not all of which have been developed with experts who have the most up-to-date knowledge as well. So there's quite a lot that people have to navigate, but I think if we can signpost these credible sources and make sure that experts are inputting where they can, then we're providing more accessible information in a timely manner for people to be able to access when they need it. 
So that's kind of a nice segue into the work that you do at the Genomics Education Programme. What kind of resources are you providing and who are they aimed at? Who can actually get your resources to help them? So our resources are available for anyone, but they are targeted towards healthcare professionals. Not only those that are currently working, but also those that are going to be our future workforce as well. So we do work with educators as well. And I think that's a really key point to make is that genomics is now being integrated into a large number of the training curricula, which means more and more healthcare professionals are required to know about genomics than they ever have before. But that also means that a large number of educators are having to teach about genomics, which they never have before. And this can be quite a daunting subject to start teaching. So we are doing a large amount of work to develop resources that are available for educators and also to provide them with tools that they can use to identify misconceptions that might be there in their students, but also strategies to help them in actually dealing with these misconceptions and how to teach in a way so that the misinformation is being corrected. So what would be an example of a way of drawing out and addressing these misconceptions? Because we've talked already about some of the kinds of things that that people might have, myths and misconceptions. So how can health professionals find out what people think and then start working to address them? So one avenue that, say, an educator could take is to actually have a questionnaire that they've developed or adapt one that's already out there that asks questions about some common misconceptions that are out there so you can get a baseline view about what your students or your student cohort are actually thinking That would then allow you to target those in your teaching sessions. So one way to do that is to actually talk about the facts that are there about this particular area. Then to actually address the misconception, so you're actually bringing it up and you could perhaps phrase this as this is a common misconception that's out there in the public and so this might be something that your patients are coming to you with this misconception. Address it and talk about what might be wrong about the misconception, but then come back to what the fact actually is as well. So really getting people to understand the right information and the wrong information and be able to delineate between the two. I always think it's very curious to find out why has someone come across that, you know, maybe this was just something always their mother said or or something like that. Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting about the different ways that people have misconceptions. I've heard a variety of things where people have read something and they fully believe it. So the media does play a role in this as well. Although to give the media credit, I think they are calling on the experts a lot more to be able to sense check the information that they're providing. If we're considering what's available in popular culture, then sometimes they might take creative license with what they're doing just so it fits in with the storyline a bit better. But I know that some people do take that as actual fact if they don't know anything else. There's also a lot of family myths that are out there about how information is inherited in families and why some people might develop a particular genetic condition to another. So there's a whole range of ways in which people can actually gain their knowledge about genetics or genomics. So it can be challenging to try and identify those misconceptions and those myths, but I do think it's a responsibility of the educators to do that. Otherwise, we are perpetuating these misconceptions and healthcare professionals might be talking to patients about it, believing what they believe about genetics and genomics to be correct if that hasn't been addressed in their education. It makes sense that people like doctors and genetic counsellors, those sort of on the front lines of genomic medicine, 
would hopefully be up to date on this, be able to communicate about it. But there's an awful lot of people who are intersecting with the health system. I'm thinking of nurses. I'm thinking uh, I used to work for a cancer charity. So those sort of people who are dealing with people who may have questions, the general public, people with healthcare conditions. How can we try and get more knowledge out there of where the resources are to learn about genomics and to communicate it effectively? It is a big challenge and it's one that we're constantly working on. I think working in partnership with a number of different stakeholders is really important. Obviously, this is our bread and butter, the business that we do every day, but we can't do it alone by ourselves. So we need to work with different organisations and patient groups and charities are a really key part of that because that's often where patients and the public are going to go first to find out information. So we work with them, but also most of the patient organisations and charities will have an expert group that works with them to help write information I think the information that is written and provided on websites needs to be very accessible for people to break down the complexities of this subject into a way that is very easy for people to be able to understand regardless of what their prior educational background is and to make sure that we are consistent in the messaging that we're providing. I think that's a really important thing because you don't want to have conflicting evidence from what seems to be credible sources because otherwise it's very difficult for people to try and navigate that and to work out what is the correct information and what isn't the correct information. That's Michelle Bishop and before her we heard from Anna Middleton and Laura Boys. So, do you get wound up about dodgy DNA science in the movies? Is your mother insistent that you're only good at podcasting because your distant relative was a preacher? Or is that just me? And what's the strangest misconception about genetics that you've ever heard? To join the conversation and get involved in the Genomics Education Programme's Week of Action, you can follow them on Twitter, at GenomicsEDU, and just get on the hashtag GenomicsConversation. Or head over to genomicseducation.hee.nhs.uk. That's all for now. Next time, we'll be celebrating 35 years of genetic fingerprinting. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, at GeneticsUnzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Kat Arney, and it's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logos designed by James Mayle, transcription is by Viv Andrews, and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.